Open your Bibles with me to Galatians chapter 6. Think about a hope that doesn't disappoint. Love that. Love that our hope is in the God who is uh, a freedom giver. He's not an enslaver. He's he's a he gives freedom to his people. What a beautiful thing for us to to come to this God and give our lives to this God. Today we're finishing up the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians, this inspired word of God to the church, not just for those in Galatia, but for all time. We know that this word will endure for eternity as the word of God. And we are grateful to be able to gather around it and study what he says in it. And it is a a message of freedom to his people, that there were a group of people coming into the church in Galatia trying to enslave them back to the law that Christ had already fulfilled and had set people free from, from the sin that they'd been set free of. So his message of freedom is look to Christ, walk in the spirit. You don't have to follow and worry about the old covenant law as long as you're walking in the spirit. If we're walking in the spirit, we'll bear fruit in the spirit. And it's the fruit of the spirit that the law submits to. It is the law that was written to have us be fruitful. So he writes to us for freedom. And here is Paul is ending this letter today in verses 11 through 18. Chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. The main idea that we can pull from this text as we're trying to be faithful to what is this text saying The main idea is that followers of Christ boast in the cross. Followers of Christ boast in the cross. That might seem simple, but we're going to really try to walk through. What does it mean for us to boast in the Christ? Well, followers of Christ do it. Followers of Christ boast in the cross. So why don't we just start in the text? Let's read. We'll read the whole text, uh, verses 11 through 18 together that we're looking at today. So if you would... Follow along with me if you've got your copy of God's Word or if you're in the Bible app or even even if you're just Googling. uh, I'd love for you to have the Word in front of you. We put it up on the screen. I'd like to think that the screens are a last resort. (laughs) Like Join us in in a a copy where you can put your eyes on it and interact with it um, on your paper or on your phone. Read with me. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh... Who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. 
I've titled this sermon, Get Off My Lawn. Because I think, I think Paul here is a little bit like that old guy who doesn't want people to bother him anymore. <laughs> like, just leave me alone. You see that in the last passage and we'll get there. But really, it's less like this unfamiliar stranger and it's more like a father sending his children off. Go, go follow Christ well. The first thing we see, if we look at verses 11 through 13, we see this idea of a people who are self-centered. It's a self-centered people in verses 11 through 13. In verse 11, uh, you see, see with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. I think that's like the literary version of grabbing you by the collar. Right? If Paul could write a way to grab them by the collar and just hold them and say, look at me in the face. This is it. Look, look at the, I'm writing with my own hand. Look at these big letters. Paul was probably going blind at this point. He's like, look, this is taking me effort. I need your attention. Look at me. This is serious. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. He says a good showing in the flesh. What is a good showing in the flesh? If you flip back a couple of verses, we already see what is the work of the flesh. We see that we shouldn't be living in the flesh, but that we should be living in the spirit. So what is, what is a good showing in the flesh? Well, sowing, sowing to the flesh, living in the flesh doesn't always look like really gross sins, right? There's things that even people who aren't Christians could be like, yeah, that's wrong. (laughs) It's not always these really heinous wrongs. A lot of times sowing to the flesh usually looks pretty acceptable. We're good with most of what sowing to the flesh looks like in our lives. Maybe a good way to think of this, though, in the Christian life, sowing to the flesh or, or making a good showing in the flesh for the Christian, I'll give you a term for this. It's performative Christianity. It's Christianity as performance art, right? That we're doing this for show. We're trying to make a good show so that you'll believe us or that you'll give us what we want or that we'll get an immediate reward, That's what performative Christianity is really about, is an immediate reward. And Jesus warned us about this. He knew this. He teaches against it. Matthew 6. And as he's giving the Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about what not to do. Look at these guys. Don't do it like them. Do it like what God has called us to. Matthew 6, 1, he gets straight to it. Matthew 6, 1, Jesus said, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. Do you see that? Making a good showing in the flesh. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. In order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. It's not that they won't have a reward. It's that they won't have the right reward. The people who are doing the righteousness to be seen. Those who are the performance Christians. Those who are making a good showing in their flesh. Are aiming for a worthless reward. And when you aim for worthless rewards. It leads to joylessness. It leads to frustration. Performative Christianity will eventually lead to joylessness. And it will eventually lead to a lack of dependence on the Spirit. Not even that it leads there. That's where it starts from. Performative Christianity starts with a lack of dependence on the Spirit. I think the pinnacle, we could argue that the pinnacle of performative Christianity is that phrase in verse 12. They force you to be circumcised. And here we see that idea of circumcision is just a a microcosm of the larger idea of following this Old Testament law, of being bound to an old covenant law, 
not looking to Jesus only for their salvation, but looking to their works for salvation. They're forcing this works-based salvation, which is not no salvation at all, this work on people. It's the pinnacle of performative Christianity that our joylessness will eventually lead us to want others to be joyless like us. That if we're following the laws, then you need to follow them too. We're going to force you into it. A forced obedience, though, is not a pleasing obedience. A forced obedience is not a pleasing obedience. God desires a joyful obedience from his people. An obedience where we are glad to do what he says, glad to follow his lead. It's an obedience driven by love and appreciation for who he is. That we might be able to sing about his attributes and look and say, God, you are, you are this kind of God and we are glad to follow and obey. Where this performance-based, false teaching Christianity leads us to forced action. The gospel doesn't force you. It invites you. The gospel doesn't force you, it invites you. It's the opposite of this performance-based Christianity. The gospel is an invitation. It is an invitation to deny yourself and to take up your cross daily and follow after Jesus. We honor Jesus with joyful obedience, not guilt-driven performance. Joyful obedience draws from a deep well of gratitude that doesn't dry up at signs of suffering or hardship. Guilt-driven performance dries up as soon as the thing that eases my guilt comes along, whatever that may be. But if we're drawing from the deep well of joy in Christ, then when hardship and suffering come along, we endure. We say, God, you're better than all of this. We enjoy you more than all of this. You're better than all. It's the joy set before us that we endure. Joyful obedience keeps looking to Christ as our great reward when every other pleasure in life is torn away. A performative Christianity can't do that. It won't do that. But a joyful obedience built on our love of our Savior will persevere. Performative Christianity hates endurance and hates patience because it's built on the sinking sands of immediate comfort and approval. That's what we find with the Pharisees in Matthew 6.1. That's what we're finding with these false teachers in Galatians is that they wanted approval. They wanted comfort. And those are, those are shifting, sinking sands. Why did the false teachers in Galatia force them to be circumcised or want to force that? Look at verse 12. Only in order. Here's their purpose. What is their purpose? It's not to honor God. It's not out of a love for God. Only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Look at the, look at the false motivation there. Verse 13. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. It's like they're not even doing what they're asking you to do. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Really, you see that. So they won't, what is the motivation? So they won't be persecuted. So they may boast in your flesh. I mean, aren't those the double whammies of comfort and approval? They're, that's exactly what they're looking for. So they won't be persecuted, comfort. So they may boast in your flesh is approval. They wanted a comfortable Christianity. 
They wanted just to follow Christ for the sake of comfort. Jesus wasn't a treasure for them. He was a tool for them. Jesus, get me what I want. Jesus could keep their lives comfortable in this mindset. That's what they were after. Jesus, using Jesus as this tool, could make others behave within their expectations. If it wasn't Jesus, these false teachers in Galatia, these Pharisees in Matthew 6, if it wasn't Jesus, they would have found another vehicle for this type of safe life. Jesus just happened to be an effective tool for them to abuse, to create a system that would sustain what they wanted. But Jesus never called us to safety or comfort. He never called us to what these false teachers in Galatia, what these Pharisees in Matthew 6 were doing. He never called us to that. He called us really to adventure and radical obedience that we take steps outside of what makes us comfortable and follow him. It's one of the reasons that I'm so excited for our church to be planting another church. As we aim for that in the future, it's a way that we can step out of these areas of comfortability and do things that feel dangerous. Really, planting a church provides us with an an opportunity for a life of healthy danger. I was thinking about how to phrase that. I don't know. I don't know if I've ever heard talk about healthy danger, but there is. In our lives, there's healthy danger. What risks, measured risks for the gospel are we taking? There should be. We should be taking risks for the gospel. So what if you move to another town for the sake of proclaiming the gospel to a campus in need of knowing Jesus and the town around that campus? There is a desperate need for the gospel. I want to grab you by the collar. I want to show you with the size of my writing how important this is to me, right? Look at this desperate need for Jesus on so many college campuses and in the rural communities that surround them. There is a great need. College students, is there not a great need for Christ on the college campus? Yeah. Husbands and wives, single adults, children, is there not a great need for Christ in your schools and in your workplaces? There's a great need. And we can be so sunk into our comfortability using Jesus more as a crutch than as our salvation and our king who we give full obedience to that we just ride out what we're doing and we ignore the great need. Tell me, tell me provision that we haven't found That in the church-saturated area that we're in, that there's still a great need. I mean, there's more people than every healthy church right now could possibly reach. As the Spirit works, as, as disciples are made, churches will be planted and Christians will go. And the truth is that some of us need to give up the comfortability of Union County for the mission of Christ. But maybe we need to even start smaller than that. Maybe some of us need to give up the comfortability of our normal routines to follow the mission of Christ, to to be obedient to the mission of Christ. Maybe some of us need to give up the comfortability of what's natural in our temperaments and personalities for the mission of Christ. To be on adventure, 
to live with healthy danger for following Christ. Paul knew the false teachers in Galatia loved their comfort more than Christ. He said, look, they don't, they don't even keep the law. What they're, what they're asking you to do, they don't even do. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. It's all performative. I love the state motto of North Carolina. Does anybody know the state motto of North Carolina? I don't even see a hand. Anybody got a hand up? Okay, Brian. Okay, we got a couple people. Okay, good. Good. We got two. So it's Latin, and I'm not even going to try because I don't want to be in fun of later for, for, for messing up the Latin. But here's what, it means. here's what it means in English. To be rather than to seem. To be rather than to seem. Isn't that a good motto for the Christian life as well? That we would be obedient rather than to seem obedient. These false teachers in Galatia were, were comfortable seeming obedient. They didn't mind just seeming one way because it was a means to an end. Christ was not the end for the false teachers. He was a means to the comfortable end in this world. And Jesus says, you can have it. If that's what you want, have it. That's what he said in Matthew 6. Look, you're not going to have the reward in heaven. The Father will not give you a reward for being comfortable in this life. If you want that reward, have it. Church, we want a greater reward than comfort in this life. We want Christ. We want Him. He is our reward. He is our treasure. To be rather than to seem. Not a performer, but an obedient son or daughter. Not self-centered, not about me, not about my own comfort, not about what I can get, not but about how I can manipulate what is good and make it make what is supposed to be good evil for my sake. It's not self-centered, it's Christ-centered. Look at verse 14. Galatians 6, verse 14. But far be it from me. To boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. I mean, this is the Christ-centered life. This is, this is the call to Christ-centeredness. Our, our mission statement as a church is like what, what we intend to be about, what defines us as our activity is that we want to be a Christ-centered community driven by the joy of the gospel to make disciples who make disciples. That's our mission. We believe that's just straight out of the pages of God's word. The mission for every church, really. A Christ-centered community. We're not a community centered around our political views. We're not a community centered around the way we look. We're not a community centered around our financial status. We're not even a, a community centered around our, uh, our zip code. Like I'm grateful of how many people live that come to this church in Stallings or Mint Hill or Wingate or Marshville or Monroe. But we are a community centered around Christ. Our commonality is Christ. We come together and we proclaim together that, yes, my reward, my whole life, what I want is Christ. And so I'm okay with putting aside a ton of differences for the sake of that. I mean, we have guys who win 
championships together on the football field who have nothing in common because their goal is a trophy at the end of the season. Our reward is Christ. There is unity in our centeredness around who Christ is. And Paul calls the church to that. Paul calls the Galatians to that and he calls us to that as well, to be Christ-centered. How could I, think about this, how could I, a sinner, fallen short of the glory of God, a sinner whose wage for my sin is death. This is an accurate view of myself. That I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wage, what I've earned by doing that is death. How could I then boast in anything other than that supreme moment when my great treasure proclaimed his love for me on the cross? We sing in how deep the Father's love for us that he made us his treasure. And how sweet, how good is it that our treasure proclaims us as his treasure as well? What kind of sweet love is that that we share with him, that he desires us, that he loves us? How could I boast in anything else except the cross? I consider my life and work and I can't can't find anything that compares to that. What in your life could you possibly find that would give you greater reason to stand with confidence than that Jesus Christ laid his life down for you? That is your great confidence in this life and in the next. That confidence doesn't end when you die. It really begins when you die. We stand before the Father. We stand before the judge in the confidence of the one who took the cross for me. My boast or what I take pride in or what makes me feel worthy or that I have value. My boast for the Christian, our boast is the cross. We take great pride in the cross, not because of us. It's not pride in ourselves. It's pride in our God. If we begin to boast in our work or our righteousness, we begin to lose sight of the heart of our faith. We take our eyes off of our reward. A redeemed mind is a Christ-centered mind. All of our thoughts, as we are sanctified, as we grow towards Christ, as we are redeemed, a redeemed mind is a Christ-centered mind. So self-centeredness and self-preservation and self-promotion have no place before the throne of Christ. A redeemed mind is a mind before the throne of Christ. And how could we sit in his throne room? How could we say like David that we want to be in his courts and in his courts be like, but God, look how good I am. It doesn't make sense. It's dissonant. The Christian life is lived prostrated before the feet of Christ. And it's tempting to think, and then we rise from that position to walk alongside of him. Now, I think we don't rise to walk alongside him. We stay there to walk alongside of him. You're like, well, you can't do that and walk. Well, I don't know how God does it. But we live our Christian life thrown down before him, thrown down at the throne of grace, And we can be glad and certain in our place beneath the throne of grace. 
Because the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And that can sound like a theological concept, right? Like something you learn in theology class. I'm crucified to the world. The world is crucified to me. But it's not. It's not just a theological concept. Can I I draw you out of the, the humdrum of your life for a second to remind you of the intense beauty of what God has done in you, Christian? I mean, the words to put around the goodness of what Christ has done to remove your sin, to take it on himself, to wash your sin away so that you could be with him. No part of your life is mundane. Maybe that's one of the most important things I preach from, from the stage to you, Christian, is that no part of your life is mundane. There's no mundane in a life redeemed by Christ. For the Christian, every part of our existence is infused with beauty because of the transforming work of the gospel. As Christians, we we should love beauty. We should pursue beauty in this world because we, we love what God has done. We love that he is a God of beautiful creation. And it's not until we die to this world that the world is crucified in us and we're crucified to the world that we really can see that beauty in the mundane that the the beauty in the humdrum the, the beauty in the everyday it's beautiful because Christ has redeemed it it's beautiful because Christ is working to bring all things together for his glory and his good Being crucified, being crucified to the world doesn't remove us from the world. It transforms our relationship with the world. We're not escapists trying to get away. God sent us here as ambassadors. We're here on purpose, church. Or are we here on purpose? We're called to be here. We're called to be here on purpose. Are we living on purpose? Our relationship is transformed with the world. No longer is the world just an image of decay. Now it can be an image of redemption. Your your role in the world used to be one of joining in death. In sin, we were joining in on death. But now, now God has transformed your role and he's made you a herald of life. You don't bring life, but you get to proclaim life. You get to hold up the light. And say, look, here it is. Look how good this life is in Christ. We're not slaves anymore. We're free in him. Look, it's not just death anymore. It's life in him. Christians go into the darkness with our lamps. We bring light to the darkness. We bring beauty to the unlovely. We don't just look at the world then with a different lens. We look at the world with new eyes. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this. 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. I wish we could understand that fully. Christian, you are a new creation. 
If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Christian, you are a new creation. And this is the standard of salvation. The standard of salvation is that you are a new creation. Circumcision isn't the standard. Good works isn't the standard. Circumcision doesn't count for anything, the text says. Look back at Galatians 6. Circumcision doesn't count for anything. Your works aren't the standard. You're not going to follow the law enough. Your traditions, your legalism, your self-righteousness, they don't count for anything. Only Christ. Only Christ. So then the question is, are you in Christ? 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Are you in Christ? Could that be said of you? Could God say that of you? Forget what your neighbor says. This isn't about performance, right? (laughs) What about the one who can truly judge you, who knows you deeper than you know yourself? What would he say? Are you in Christ? That's the essential question this morning. Are you in Christ? Really, it's not just an essential question. It's the eternal question. (laughs) When you stand in judgment, will you stand alone? Like alone, by yourself, before the judge. Think about how we would stand. How do we stand before a judge? Not like this. We stand completely exposed before him. There's no secrets. There's no hiding. There's no thoughts he doesn't know. There's no part of you that he doesn't completely understand. You're completely exposed alone. Exposed of your need and your sin. Exposed of your rebellion and rejection of God. Exposed of all your mistreatment of others and your selfishness, your self-centeredness. That's a really negative view. But none of us could look at that description of self-centeredness, of rebellion, of in great need with sin. And believe that doesn't apply to us. That applies to each one of us. All of us have those things. So will we stand in judgment alone or, or will we stand in Christ? Will we stand covered in Christ? Covered by his righteousness. Will you be seen in his righteousness draped over you? Covering you. So that the view of the father towards you is pleasure and love. And as a son. As a daughter. Will you stand covered in Christ? Cleansed in fact by his blood. It's not just words we sing in an old song. We are washed by his blood in truth when we turn to him. That the father might look on you with pleasure, not because you followed enough rules, but because his son claims and covers and forgives you. Are you in Christ? This is the gospel then. That in ourselves we deserve death. That we deserve to stand alone, exposed. But Jesus came so that in him, so that in him and through him, 
that in Christ we might have life, that we might be made a new creation, that we might be born again. Jesus said, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, how can one be born again? It's only through the work of Jesus. And as for all who walk by this rule, verse 16, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. It's those who are born again, who are in Christ, who have the peace and mercy of God. It looks like Paul here is even mocking the Judaizers in Galatia. When you look at this text, those, those Judaizers, those who were coming in as false teachers, this line that they would be peace and mercy, that they would walk by this rule. I mean, he spent the whole letter saying, look, the law, the law of the old covenant doesn't apply to you because of the, the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. It's only Christ. And then he says, for all those who walk by this rule, I mean, what is our law, church? Our law is love. Our law is fulfilled in Christ. These Judaizers were enforcing rules that God didn't desire for his people. Their claim was that these rules of circumcision and following various Jewish traditions and laws would bring peace with God. And Paul's saying, no, no, it's, it's those who are in Christ who have peace with God. It's those who are in Christ who find mercy before God. Paul here proclaims that the only rule that will bring peace is the love of Jesus. So walk by the spirit of God, walk by this rule, walk by love and peace and mercy to those people, to the Israel of God, which is to say that that phrasing there, the Israel of God is to say that those who are truly God's people are those who are in Christ. Where these false teachers were pointing them back. Look, look, the people of God follow these rules. He's saying, no, the people of God are in Christ. God's people are found in Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He is the fulfillment of the prophecy. All that was promised in the covenant with Abraham, with Israel, is found in Jesus. For those false teachers who pointed to the law of the old covenant with Israel as essential to salvation, I mean, this is just a scorching ending. You ever see like the clickbait headlines on, on social media or on websites, and it's like, this politician scorched this other politician. I mean, this is like really, this is really scorching here. Like, this is not a clickbait, head, clickbait headline. Like, Paul is laying into them. All that you are claiming, false teachers, is false, and it is only found in Jesus. Paul here crisply points us to the sufficiency of Christ. Even with a phrase like, even, in, even the Israel of God. That the people of God are found in Christ and Christ alone. And then he moves to his closing. He closes his letter like this in verse 17 and 18. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. I mean, Paul wants no trouble. <laughs> no more trouble. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. In some ways, isn't this the desire of every parent? <laughs> I mean, man, at the end of some days, when your kids get out of bed, like you've already put them to bed twice, and they come out of their bed, and they're like, can I have a water? This is a good one to memorize, parents. 
From now on, let no one cause me trouble. Go back to bed. I mean, as they grow older, honestly, as they grow older, they would be, our hope is that they would be wise and independent, not that it wouldn't get out of bed, but that they would become adults who are wise and independent and that they would cause joy, not trouble. That's the hope. That's the hope of loving parents is that their children would bring them great joy, not great trouble. And who is Paul here? I mean, Paul is the disciple maker of this church. He, he helped start this church in Galatia. And he's, he's writing this letter to them as a parent, hoping that they will be wise, that they would follow after Christ without his close attention because of their joy in Christ, that they would bring him joy, not trouble. Every disciple maker should desire this, that we produce men and women who are complete, equipped for every good work, that we produce disciples of Jesus who submit to the authority of Scripture, who pray like crazy, that are willing to suffer and be persecuted for Jesus, who are willing to find redeeming beauty in every moment. That's the type of disciples church that we want to be making. And truly, it's not us making them. It's the work of the Spirit, but it's, it's our faithfulness in, in obeying the call of Christ on our lives. So obedience produces obedience, not because of our goodness, but because of the goodness of the one we obey. <laughs> We just keep being obedient. We keep teaching obedience. Paul could speak and teach from experience. He's the model disciple maker. His experience had left him with literal scars to prove his faithfulness to Christ. He bore on his body the marks of Christ. He endured the suffering for the joy set before him. So he says to his spiritual children, don't add to my suffering (laughs) Like, I've already bore the marks of Christ. I've already suffered. Don't, don't you, don't you make me suffer. You follow after Jesus. You bring joy to my experience. You bring joy to my life. Don't add to my suffering through your foolishness and from your turning away from the truth. Be faithful. Walk in the Spirit. Be in Christ. That's the, that's the letter. That's Galatians. Walk in the Spirit. Enjoy him. Enter his courts with thanksgiving and praise. Be with him. Fellowship with God. Enjoy him. Stop stop keeping your eyes on the temporary things and start putting your eyes on your treasure. Love Jesus more than anything. Be in Christ. Paul finishes, finishes the letter to the Galatians by praying, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This prayer is a wonderful reminder, intentional reminder for the church. An intentional reminder that they are saved by God's grace alone. What do I want for you, church? I want God's grace on your life. What what do I want for you? I want the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with your spirit. As one of your pastors here at Provision, that's what I want for you. I'm grateful that I know to want that for you because of God's word, because of Paul wanting that for the Galatians. This is what we want for those who we're discipling, those who we're investing our lives in, is that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ would be with their spirit, that they would truly be brothers and sisters. Paul's reminding them of this. 
But if you're not in Christ, if you've never believed in him for your salvation, you can be saved by this grace. The grace he prays for the church is the grace that saves. It's not your work that saves. It's it's not getting good enough or preparing to be good enough to be saved. It is by grace alone that you are saved. Grace means favor you didn't earn, or we say it, unmerited favor. Grace, favor you didn't earn. Look, you can't earn this salvation. It's one of the beauties of our redemption, of our story of salvation, is that we didn't contribute to it other than the sin that we brought to it. It's the goodness of God. It's his favor on us. Ephesians 2.8 says it like this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Grace brings us to this point of faith. So in God's goodness to you, he has shown you grace today. That you have heard the gospel. That you have sin. That there is a punishment for your sin. And that without help, you will live forever or you will die forever apart from Christ. But, I mean, the gospel is wrapped up so much in that but, that there's a transition from that, that you're not left there, but that Jesus came. And if we receive his death in our place, if by faith we take his death in our place, and by faith we take his resurrection as our resurrection, then someday we will not pay the penalty for our death because it has been paid for us in Christ. We will not be dead. We will be alive with him forever because he has risen again. We share in his resurrection by faith. What will you do with that grace this morning? To have heard the gospel. Will you reject it? You might think, I don't reject God. You have the moment right now to reject God or to embrace him. He is offering himself to you. He doesn't offer as one who begs. He offers as a king commanding. He will take all of you or you will have none of him. He has done everything to make you his. By grace through faith. By grace through faith, will you receive it? So normally I end our time with questions. It's like application. What do you do now? The Bible tells us not to be just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. How do we be doers of the word? Well, this isn't a, <laughs> this isn't a question. You need to be saved. If you're here and you're not a Christian, be saved. Turn to Christ. Call out to him for your salvation. There's no magic words. There's no magic prayer. It's belief. It's faith. It's turning from your idols, turning from the things that you expect to give you satisfaction and salvation and to turn only to Christ. Call out to him now. Tell him you need his, you need his help. You need his salvation. If you're not a Christian, that's step one. Start there. Trust Jesus for your salvation because he alone can save. If you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, I'll give you a statement as well today. Obsess over Jesus. I think if I could give you, man, how how do I summarize so much of this from Galatians? How, How do you walk in the spirit? Obsess over Jesus. Have one obsession in your life. What, what do you want to be known for? You, we're normally known for our obsessions, right? He loves his family. That's really just saying like he obsesses over his family. <laughs> he loves football. She loves her job. Man, 
wouldn't it be that everyone in this church would be known for their obsession over Jesus? If we obsess over Jesus, we're going to walk in the Spirit. We're going to live in freedom. We're going to pursue Him and His Word. We're going to pray like crazy. We're going to pursue the lost. We're going to want the world to know what we know. If you're a Christian, forsake Forsake the treasures of this world. Give up the performance-based Christianity that reaps immediate rewards, but nothing lasting, and obsess over Jesus. He gives beauty to everything. So look on him with your new eyes, new creations. Look on him with your new eyes and obsess over the one thing that truly matters. If you want to talk, I'm going to be at the back. I would love to talk through any of this with you. You can come find me. We say this a lot. There's a lot of Christians in this room. I'd love for you to find a brother or sister in Christ and talk to them about your questions. If you're not a Christian, anybody can talk to you about Christ. Being a pastor, I don't have special access. <laughs> we each one of us have the same high priest in Jesus Christ with the same access. So I'll be glad to talk with you. But really any Christian in here should be equipped to talk to you about the hope they have in Christ. Can I pray over you? And let's continue worshiping. Let's worship in prayer now. Let's worship in our response. Let's worship in our singing. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this letter to the Galatians. God, by, by your providence, we have it. By your gift to us, we have it. You saw fit to provide for us a way to know you and know how to honor you, a way to know how to obey you. So, God, thank you for that. I thank you for this congregation who desires to hear your word. That we could spend 20 weeks and six chapters of a book and not lose interest. God, I thank you for what your spirit is doing in the people here that draws them to your word. I pray that you would increase that. I pray that more and more this church would be known as a people of your word, as a people of prayer, as a peop people on mission, obsessed over you. I'd ask that it would be through us that you would work in bringing people to know yourself. Help us to be participants in your great design of evangelism. I pray that there are those in this room or even watching, listening online who don't know you. I pray right now you would stir in them so greatly, so deeply that they could do nothing else but repent and turn to you. God, leave no shred of their old life behind. Make them new creations now. God, we thank you for the goodness, for the cross, the goodness of the cross that leads us to repentance, that we can be obedient in joyfulness, that we can be happy as we follow you. God, thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.